Welcome, everybody, to the Jay Martin Show, episode one. My name is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. Now, I couldn't think of a better conversation to get this podcast started than a one-on-one interview with the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada, the Right Honorable Stephen Harper. Because Prime Minister Harper led Canada through the 2008 Great Financial Crisis, and I really wanted to pick his brain to determine if he had any key takeaways or lessons learned or saw any parallels for what the governments of 2008 had to deal with compared to what our governments are dealing with today on the heels of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, he was very quick to say, look, Jay, this one is very, very different. In 2008, that was a financial crisis. This is a globally mandated recession in response to a pandemic, and that has never happened before. But we touched on the key issues, what he thinks are the most concerning blind spots facing governments and citizens. We touched on the massive debt game that every developed nation is playing. And I asked him point blank, is there any way he sees this ending cleanly? And spoiler alert, his answer was no. This was a point in the conversation where he actually got quite somber thinking about his family's future in that scenario. We talked about the commodities market because in 2008, Prime Minister Harper leveraged the commodities market extensively in order to pull Canada out of the 2008 crisis. So we discussed the likelihood that North America could play that card again. We talked about central bank-issued digital currencies and the future of currency in general, specific to the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. I got his thoughts on whether or not he ever believed a decentralized digital currency could be competitive on the global stage. We talked about the civil unrest in the U.S. that surged in the last 36 months and got his thoughts on the role major technology companies played in that and any responsibility they should have for the growing divide and unrest. This was a fascinating discussion with the leader of a G7 nation. Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. I really hope you enjoy this. Okay, guys, Jay Martin here, CEO of Cambridge House. And it is my grand honor to introduce the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper. Mr. Harper, how are you? I'm very well, and thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting with you, and, and thank you for your time. So I have a, a handful of topics I'd love to cover with you today. We're going to get through as much as we can in the time okay. that we have. And when I was reflecting on where I wanted to start this conversation, I, I think we have to start with, call it the, the COVID spillout, right? So not necessarily the pandemic, but the economic fallout that's occurring and probably will continue to occur. Because the most important question that we're always trying to answer, you know, my audience is investors, Mr. Harper. So we're always trying to figure out what's next, right? Right. And the reason I wanted to start here with you is because you managed the 2008 great financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And we actually, as a country, Canada, we we came through that very strong, right? We had the lowest debt to GDP of all the G7 nations. Uh, You know, articles are being written in The Economist about how Canada came out stronger than any of our peers we also entered that crisis from a position of strength, right? Alberta had a positive balance sheet. I think we paid down something like $92 billion in federal debts in the previous 12 months, largely as a result of your government. And our banks, you know, I guess compared to our Southern neighbors, maybe we're well capitalized, right? So how much of that, because there were, there were three factors at play, you know, how you're looking, moving into a crisis, how you manage the crisis and then what happens next. But how much of our setup moving in a, in a position of strength impacted how we came out of that event? Well, look, I won't deny that, that obviously how we were positioned at the beginning was a big, big factor. This was, after all, 
a global financial crisis. And we did not have a financial crisis in Canada. We did not have the failure of a single significant financial institution and the government of Canada did not have to bail out any financial institutions. We did, I tell people, this is a part of the, of the period that's often forgotten. We did enter into some interesting market transactions to sustain liquidity, including doing some paper swaps, short-term paper, long-term paper swaps with the banks on which the government of Canada actually made money. I think this is probably the only time in history someone's made money at the expense of a major Canadian bank. So, you know, we, we obviously, we didn't have that problem. We had a strong federal balance sheet. Frankly, household balance sheets were stronger then than they are now. Corporate balance sheets were also stronger. So we, look, we, we went in in a very strong position, but I would say that the government, you know, we did do some things right as well. Um, we did, of course, execute a large scale you know, quote, stimulus spending program. But we did, first of all, we delivered it through existing institutions. We didn't try to build new bureaucracy, which meant we got it out the door on time. And we wrapped most of it up within the two-year time frame that we promised. Then, of course, we used the subsequent four years to get ourselves back to balance. Um, and right. by the way, that that part's very rare. You know, Jay, this is what, you know, I think, the Canadian public in some ways took the wrong lesson from that. They took the lesson, okay, you can run a temporary deficit and get back to balance later. In fact, when governments run deficits, they usually become permanent. It's very rare yeah, that you actually come back from it. But I had, you know, two strong finance ministers and Jim Flaherty and Joe Oliver, and we executed that plan. Money out the door, activity created, and then getting ourselves back to balance gradually um, and with, frankly, a little disruption. Obviously, we're in a totally different situation this time. Obviously, not as strong. It's a totally different kind of crisis, in fairness. Yeah. This time, we're dealing not with a financial crisis or even an economic crisis. We're dealing with a pandemic that has become an economic uh, downturn, well, recession, major recession. Yeah. Okay, now I want to pick your brain just on crisis management, because when yeah. you're in that seat, and sure, during the 2008 crisis, you have... To, to really simplify, you have two buckets you have to balance. One is the immediate economic needs, right? Income disruption, business insolvency, corporate bankruptcies. And you have to weigh that. I mean, to solve that, you've got to create some stimulus. So you've got to balance that against essentially mortgaging our financial future. Right. So what conversations do you have in that moment? So um, look, each crisis is is different. I, I would tell you that having been there, the crisis is actually a little more complicated than that. That's the policy side of managing managing it. The the real parallel for the government is you've also got to manage the communication side, which is you know sending the public and markets and everybody else the right signals. Um, you know, frankly, in an atmosphere of constant media misinformation. And so that, that is the big part of the challenge you face. But as I say, in that particular instance, when it came to policy, we had a very, very clear vision from day one, which was, we were yes, we were going to spend money. Uh, we were going to spend money in ways that could be delivered quickly and generate meaningful economic activity, but that we were going to wind it up. So winding it up solved basically half of the deficit problem. The other half is the fact that the recessions knocked you off your long-term track. And then that required four years of frankly quiet, but very hard work 
on re-engineering government expenditures, on you know, obviously keeping taxes low, but nevertheless increasing your revenues. So that was a, you know, that's a very long-term plan. And, and, you know, look, in fairness, we thought, and I'm sure you thought back in 2008, 2009, we were doing a massive uh, government spending and deficit program. It is compared to today, nothing. It's, it's an order of magnitude smaller than what has happened this time. Right, right. Yeah. Now, I wondered how much of a contributing factor was it that we came out of 2008 into a commodities market and into a market where, you know, the world wanted a lot of the, the resources that Canada had. And right. How much did that contribute to our recovery? Well, look, I've always said that one of the great strengths of the Canadian economy is that we are very rare in being a developed economy that has the range of market strengths all the way from some of the largest and best commodity producers in the world all the way through to you know secondary tertiary service sectors and high tech you know we the, that's that's an advantage of canada on the on the one hand for the government it's hardly the case that everything's always firing on all cylinders at once but it's very rare in canada that everything is in recession at once Right. And you can usually count on some recovery somewhere. Obviously, for my government, the commodity sector was important. I think we did a lot to encourage its natural advantages. And, and obviously, one of the things that concerns me today is, um, you know, there's, there's simply not the same at the national level, simply not the same uh, appreciation for an encouragement of the growth of the commodity sector. Because that that is coming, that is, Jay, once again, I think, coming out of this this recession, that will also be a potential benefit for Canada. Right. Um, parts of the world are going to grow, and some of them are going to start to grow, in my judgment, very quickly, very yeah. soon. And they will largely be in the developing world, and there will be big commodity demand. And Canada, as a safe, reliable, rules-based law, order of law producer of commodities, has a big advantage if it chooses to exploit it. So that 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 thing that helped us in 2009 could just as easily help us today with the right public policy and attitude. Okay, and I want to I want to dive into that uh, key point there. Last question on this topic though is, <clears throat> if we look at what's unfolded, we talked a lot about 2008. I want to get your perspective on what's occurring now. Since March, you know there was a you know an announcement of a global pandemic. We experienced this liquidity crisis in the markets, flight to U.S. dollar. You know, from then we transitioned into what you could call the hope phase, right? Fed swooped in, stimulated the economy, replaced incomes, everything's going to be all right, maybe. That's how it maybe seemed. And I'm wondering now, you know, looking at sort of my peers in, in the entrepreneurial world, a lot of restaurant owners, hotel owners, you can't print small business cash flow. And so, you know, are we going to experience some sort of an insolvency crisis? Yeah. Let, let me let me talk about that, Jay, because I, I think it's important for us to fully understand how different this crisis is, not just the pandemic, but how diff different the economic side of this crisis is. Sure. 2008, 2009, we had a financial crisis that resulted in a recession and for which the government's response, not just our government, governments around the world in a fairly coordinated way. Our response was to have expansionary fiscal and monetary policy for the purpose of generating economic activity as quickly as possible. 
Right. Canada was unique. In the case of other major countries, they were also intervening in the financial system to keep banks from collapsing and 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 give them uh, bailouts, whatever. We did not have that that side of the phenomenon. We had we had a couple of bailouts, but obviously not in the financial sector. So this time, um, we've had a pandemic. In fact, we haven't had a financial crisis. What we had was a series of government measures in response to the pandemic, deliberately mandating a recession, an economic slowdown. Now, I don't say this blameworthy. I think governments, you know, we can debate the degree, but had no choice but to intervene to create social distancing and and try and stop the spread of the virus. But the result was that government mandated the recession. And government's intervention in this recession, for the most part, has been not to promote or not to promote or not to, to spark economic activity, so-called stimulus, stimulus, not to stimulate economic activity, merely to provide liquidity in the absence of economic activity. Right. That's completely different than what we were trying to do in 2008, 2009. I should add, much more dangerous in the long term than what we were trying to do in 2008, 2009. And the consequences of this around the world, I'm not trying to talk about specific governments here, the consequences around the world are very clear. We will leave this a recession, the world, with a debt overhang that dwarfs what we saw in 2008, 2009. And what we saw after 2008, 2009 was after financial crisis recession, somewhat of a recovery, was then a series of fiscal of sovereign debt crises in various countries, Greece and Italy and Portugal and Ireland, we know them. Mm. This time, the debt overhangs by governments as well as businesses and households are much larger. Uh, it is, look, it's absolutely the case that we will have all kinds of solvency crises around the world, and we will have significant sovereign debt crises in the near years to come, very soon. Um, a lot of that will depend, like it isn't gonna hit everybody equally. It will depend on the circumstances of the country, the circumstances of the debt, I could go into some of the considerations. But there is no doubt that we will have, uh, governments will have fiscal crises, and obviously all kinds of businesses are going to have a trouble. There's lots of businesses that will, in fact, never recover from this. There will some that I think will bounce back quickly, yep. but there are many businesses that will never recover. And as 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 you know, in some cases, business models. You know, we already had a trend towards high tech and high tech business models. That's been accelerated during this, and there's no reason to believe we will go back to the way things were before. We'll not have the same level of business travel, the same level of conferencing. We will not have office spaces configured and used the same way as they were in the past. So there will be some permanent changes, but there will be there will be a lot of enterprises that do not recover. And as I say, a lot of states that are going to have very serious fiscal and economic crises following this. Right. Right. Okay. Now, when you, when you mention sovereign insolvencies, I can't help but think that some of these emerging economies that you referenced that are poised for growth also have some of the healthiest balance sheets. Right? right. And I want to jump into that, but I think the growth of emerging economies, the transition to renewable energy, you know, currency debasement, possible inflation, no matter what your thoughts are on that, and a, a general trend that I'm seeing from money moving from financial assets to hard assets is a is a macro picture that supports another commodities market. So what are your thoughts, Mr. Harper? Like, are we set up like we were to capitalize on that as well as we did last time? 
Um, well, look, I, I try and avoid commenting much about sort of Canadian politics today, but I don't think there's much doubt that as we speak at this moment, governments in Canada are simply not as supportive of the resource sectors as they were uh, 10 years ago. In fact, in some cases, they're outright hostile. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I tend to believe that um, as resource sectors present a significant opportunity, that you know, this being a, a modern advanced country and electorate that, that common sense will prevail and we'll find a way of taking advantage of those things. I think we'll absolutely have to. Um, but as I say, the growth, the, the growth markets, as you identified, will will not necessarily be um, in traditional uh, technologies uh, leading to the kind of traditional demand in commodities. The demand in commodities could be very different this time. And a lot of it, as last time, a lot of it will occur away from Western economies. Right. Okay. Now, is there any scenario, I'm sure you've thought about this, where we would have benefited from or we would benefit from establishing some kind of a Canadian sovereign wealth fund that's financed by the income generated from our natural resources? Well, uh, theoretically, yes. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, we look at what Norway's done, and unfortunately in Canada, you know, that wasn't done when we had the opportunity. Um, you know, the, obviously the, the, the biggest opportunity was here where I am in the province of Alberta. Alberta did establish, you know, back in the 70s, the Heritage Fund. That's right. But the truth of the matter is that over the years, the bulk of the revenues have ultimately been used for government operations. They were not used to create a long-term fund that was invested. They were, in fact, used just to expand, uh, the, expand the size and cost of services. And, um, you know, I think that's now a missed opportunity. We can, you know, if oil were to go back to $100 a barrel or we were to suddenly to have a resource sector that was providing the federal or provincial government some kind of vast and unexpected windfall that erased all of their debt and gave them all kinds of additional money. Yes, one of the best things we could do would be to create a sovereign fund, but I just don't see that. We missed the boat and I don't see that opportunity happening going forward. And I think the other thing to say, Jay, in fairness, it would have to be the provinces. I mean, people forget that, well, the federal government benefits from corporate and income tax revenue that come out of resource growth, actual resource revenues, accrue almost entirely to provincial governments. Right. Okay. Okay. Now we, we touched on the debt picture a little bit. I want to revisit that, right? We've seen the U.S. Fed balance sheet go by $3 trillion alone in 2020. And in Japan, the Eurozone, England, Canada, you know, we're, we're right behind. It's hard to wrap your mind around these numbers and you touched on it. We're leading up to some sort of a, well, we're, we're running a game plan. I don't think any of us know exactly what the end game looks like. But I'd love you to speculate for me. You know, how does this end, Mr. Harper, in your perspective? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know precisely how it ends, but I think it. I, I think we can say with some accuracy what's occurring now, and what the possible endings are. First of all, it's important to understand what is occurring now, uh, because we constantly hear there is all this injection of liquidity through low interest rates, quantitative easing, in the case of the Bank of Canada, actual creation of cash. And yet people say, but we don't have inflation. Well, that is not true. We have massive inflation. It's asset inflation. Mm. We've, had not, we've had very little consumer inflation, but we've had asset inflation because, and, and why, why would we have in consumer inflation? The vast majority of these dollars have been dedicated towards banks, large corporations, high-income individuals. They've gone towards assets and asset purchases. 
they haven't gone to the ordinary worker and spender and consumer. And so we already have an inflation problem and I am concerned, I'll be very frank with you about this, I'm very concerned that we have bubbles everywhere, um, you know, in real estate and stock markets, you name it. Fed and other central bank balance sheets have not just been buying government securities or their own securities, they've been buying the security of other governments in Canada. Um, you know, it's been unprecedented what the Bank of Canada has done, it's bought provincial securities initially because the government of Newfoundland and Labrador was on the verge of bankruptcy. It's bought corporate securities uh, at an unprecedented level. So, um, so we've got an enormous, I think we've just got enormous bubbles and we've got, we've got a debt overhang, whether it's government, I say corporate or household, that it is, it is hard to see, you know, how there could be, how that could be unwound in a, in a meaningful way. So as I say, I think you're going to have crises. And when you have those crises, governments will be confronted with a series of options, none of which are very good, but there will be austerity. Mm. Um, austerity is, people complain about austerity, but austerity is rarely done as a choice. Austerity is usually done because markets will not lend you the amount of money you want to borrow. And there will be governments that hit that wall as, as COVID-19 begins to pass and some economies, major economies begin to recover, there will be governments that cannot borrow the amount of money they want to borrow. They simply will be unable. They will have a financial crisis and their choices will be a combination of austerity, devaluation and default, or frankly, general inflation. And so I think you'll see in different markets combinations of these things. The big question is the United States. Um, you know, how long will the world loan trillions of dollars at 0% to the United States. Right now, I would say to you that in the short to midterm, the market appears willing to do that, but it's not going to do it for everybody in the world. Right. Okay. Well, let's stick with the U.S. then on that. So if we run this forward, Mr. Harper. Is there a scenario where you can see, you know, enough confidence lost in the U.S. dollar, dollar that the reserve currency status becomes compromised? Uh, I don't see that today, and I'll tell you why. It, it really just comes down to a lack of alternatives. Um, there, there obviously is a reason, there are growing reasons to have, you know, um, uh, questions about the U.S. dollar, and we've seen the U.S. dollar trend down uh, in recent months. Uh, but, you know, I experienced this a bit after 2008, 2009. Obviously, the U.S. economy was hit very hard. It was the epicenter of the financial crisis. And you had a very small number of developed countries that had reasonably strong economies. They were us. They were Australia, um, Switzerland, um, Norway. It was a very small number. And what we saw happening when I was in government is a lot of hot money moving towards our currencies. And then we immediately had a constant battle to keep our currencies from uh, appreciating too much because there simply is not the volume in those kinds of currencies. You know, if the US dollar's in trouble and the euro's in trouble, there's just not enough, there's, there's just not enough size in those other currencies to absorb the money that's floating. So first of all, the sheer, to have a, an alternative to the US dollar, you have to have a large alternative. What are the large alternatives in the world? There are only two. Um, one is the euro. Um, you know, and the truth of the matter is there's every reason to have as much, if not more doubt about the long-term 
value and stability of the euro than the US dollar. Yeah. And the other is, of course, Chinese currency. But the problem with Chinese currency is you have no idea what it's actually worth at any given moment, and you have no idea you know, what, what arbitrary measures the Chinese government could take to, to um, revalue its, its uh, obligations or, or the value of the currency itself. So you can't put money in that kind of a currency. And as I say, the only other Western alternative is the euro. So in the, in the short to medium term, it's hard to see, unless the US becomes a catastrophe, it's hard to see what the alternative is to the US dollar as the world's major reserve currency, other than you know, gold, Bitcoin, some kind of a whole basket of things, right? You, you, today it will have to be a whole basket. And I think I think that's what you will see. I think you'll see that reserves will the 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 number of things that people use as reserves will expand, but the US dollar will still be the bulk of it. Okay, I want to pull on some strings there. Uh, is there a scenario you see where the U.S. revalues gold? Um, I don't see the, well, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I think there's every reason to believe that the value of gold uh, is likely to continue appreciating. Um, you know, the one thing we do know about gold is that um, it does well when there's a general threat to encourage these or even worse, a generalized inflation. And as I think I'm telling you, given the debt overhang we're facing, the risks of inflation around the world at some point are are fairly significant. So I, I think I think you would see, you know, once you would see um, you will see gold, you know, once again become a something that people would be attracted to. But I don't want to exaggerate. Gold has its own downsides as well. Sure. Sure. But, but talk to me about that. How are you positioned, Mr. Harper, to protect your wealth? I mean, we're looking at some potential dire situations. Have you hedged? Like, how are you set up to ensure you can weather a storm? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, the, you know, both, and I'll give you a, sh a personal and a business answer, which are kind of the same. Um, obviously, as, as a as a person, I you know I my household's in Canadian dollars. I'm a Canadian taxpayer, Canadian resident. Our, our business actually operates largely in U.S. dollars, just because we run a global business. And um, so, the quickest, the, the the easiest way, or the best way that we keep ourselves protected is we keep debt levels low. Um, you know, both in our house and in our business, we've always been pretty averse to debt. I'm not saying we don't have any. Mm -hmm. But relative to our ability to get it, uh, we don't have very much. So, you know, that's the first thing. Um, you know, we have a, a, my business is diversified. That helps. It's diversified across industries and geographically. It's a global consulting business. That helps. Um, but look, the ultimate answer to your question is, if there really were a really serious crisis in the United States around the dollar and around the stability of the U.S. economy. Uh, the truth is, you know, I, I gained this through with Department of Finance officials and others after the global financial crisis. You know, after the global financial crisis, we sat down and we said, okay, we kind of got through this, but, you know, could we have seen it coming better? What could we do to avoid other scenarios? Are there other crises that could hit us? Yeah. And so we, we gained those things through. And the only thing we never had an answer for was what happens if you have a sovereign debt crisis in the United States? The truth is, if you have a sovereign debt crisis in the United States and a fundamental crisis in the US dollar, there's not a lot of places for anybody to hide. That's just the reality. So we've got to hope that uh, 
American entrepreneurship and ingenuity always uh, outpaces uh, the stupidity in Washington, which fortunately is the is the major lesson of American history. It usually does. Got it. Got it. Okay. And and do you hold gold yourself? Uh, no, we don't hold gold. I, this relative, both in terms of my household and my business, I think we would have to be at a more significant scale to make a significant gold holding worth doing. But it would just be a, a small hedge, frankly. It would, it, you know, I say there's only so much you can do with gold. Gold has its own risks. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note. If you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. Now we're seeing a lot of central banks announce either unrolling or planning to unroll central bank issued digital currencies. And do you have any thoughts just to begin? Do you have any thoughts on that concept? Well, I, I guess I, I look, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on that at all. I think to some degree it's inevitable. I guess any thoughts I have about it are subordinated to my general concern about monetary policy around the world. I am quite concerned about several aspects of monetary policy we're seeing in major centers. I, Government of Canada, under the Bank of Canada, under my government, did not do quantitative easing. Um, I'm not saying I wouldn't have done it this time, but um, it's a policy I, I'm generally skeptical of. And I am, you know, just very worried about the kinds of assets uh, central banks have been getting into. The, they're in, they're increasingly moving, in my judgment, from being merely um, institutions that monitor the money supply and monitor price stability, and they are increasingly becoming kind of a general banker, which I think is is not their role and very risky. Mm. And um, I, I feel this about, well, it starts with the Federal Reserve and all others. So I, you know, ultimately, if you have a digital currency and the purpose of the central bank is to control inflation and create uh, a stable currency and, and price stability, then you know digital currency is just kind of an evolution of the marketplace. But if it's part of a series of what I think are wild experiments as to the role of central banking, then I, it worries me a lot. Yeah, yeah, okay, it makes sense. I mean, the, yeah, the, the potential implications there are pretty dramatic, right? We People yeah. often argue, well, we already have a digital currency, right? Everything we do is online or with our phones or et cetera. But it's really just a digital ledger for physical money, right? The money itself isn't digital. It's, it's not code. It can't be programmed to behave a certain way. And you can run the, the digital currency scenario into some sort of dystopian situations where you know, if the government's providing stimulus checks that they would encourage people to spend and they're not, they could put expiration dates on that currency maybe geographic incentives to stimulate certain parts of the country. I'm not sure, but uh, okay. It, you know, is there a scenario that you can imagine where a decentralized digital currency, i.e. Bitcoin, um, actually becomes competitive as a world reserve currency? Um, I, look, I, I don't, I've, well, I've read a lot of di on digital currencies I, uh, and the Bitcoins of the world. I still don't confess to be a, 
an expert. It, it's hard for me to see, in, frankly, on a large scale, uh, how they operate really as, as a, a store of value, um, you know, which is pretty critical to a currency. Currency has three purposes, um, you know, a medium of, of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. A digital currency is a me certainly a medium of exchange. It can be a unit of account, but it's difficult for me to see how uh, private digital currencies like Bitcoin in significant quantities operate as a store of value because I, as an investor, have no idea what I'm actually, what, what this investment represents. When I, when I have a when I have a traditional currency, or for that matter, a government instrument of any kind, I ultimately have behind me the ta you know the the promise of the government backed by its taxation power. But I don't know as a store of value what I'm holding if I'm holding Bitcoin as a major reserve on my balance sheet. Right. Okay. Okay. So I want to I want to pivot now uh, to the U.S. civil unrest. And just get some of your thoughts on some of the root causes. I mean, and I'm not American, neither are you. So I'm an outsider looking in, um, but paying a lot of attention, inevitably. My wife's American and et cetera. So Mr. Harper, like from an outsider's point of view, it looks like two populations on opposite sides of maybe extreme populism where their roots are based. Would you agree with that? Yeah, look, I actually wrote a book uh, about this a couple of years back, right here, right now, uh, Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption. It wasn't strictly about the United States, but we see some of the same trends happening in a lot of Western countries and a few non-Western countries. And, and what I think the root cause of this is, is a whole lot of uh, you know, ordinary working and middle class people who have not done particularly well in the age of globalization um, and are increasingly frustrated with traditional options that don't speak to them. Sure. Um, I predicted, you know, and, and what we've seen a lot of in the last five years, what we saw was we've seen the rise of a lot of you know, what are called populist or nationalist, Eurosceptic, unconventional political parties, mostly on the right, not all, but mostly on the right. Um, and, you know, my view has been that the concerns of those people can actually be addressed through intelligent policy. It's not easy, but they can be. But that if they are not addressed, what you are going to see next is the rise of a populism on the left, which will be more explicitly Marxist or socialist. Um, you know, when I say socialist, I don't mean, you know, social spending, I mean government control of the means of production. Um, and so you're now seeing that on the left. The U.S. is more advanced on this. Um, and, you know, right now it looks to me like both, frankly, we'll see what happens with Mr. Biden, but both the traditional Republican Party and the traditional Democratic Party are struggling to, you know, to, to really combine their traditional policies and voter bases with these new populist movements and being able to kind of keep the public together and, and deliver coherent policy. But if we can't do this, what you're seeing is increasing fragmentation. I mean, you see this in Europe, you see this in countries that have, have um, you know, proportional representation, multi-party systems, we're seeing more and more parties less and less ability to form governments. There are, there are now European countries that are just perpetually turning governments over. Um, right. And what you see in majoritarian countries like, 
you know, our system or more particularly here in the United States, is you just see a fragmentation, the inability to assemble a coherent coalition. So I look, it's uh, I um, I've given I've given some thoughts in the book as to how this should be addressed, particularly by conservatives. Um, you know, obviously in the United States, um, you know, I would just say this as an observation. Um, the Trump presidency did some things to address this. Um, you know, I think we have to say that before COVID, um, the United States had really started to see um, really strong growth, frankly, the kind of strong growth we hadn't seen in a long time. And it was broadly based with increases of income for blue collar workers, which is why, interestingly enough, President Trump's vote among those kinds of people actually went up in the, in the election, including among non-white voters, Blacks and Hispanics. But at the same time, President Trump ran the most fiscally irresponsible government in history uh, in a country that already has a big fiscal problem. And obviously, he was not able to heal the kind of social divisions that are underlying some of this turmoil. In fact, if anything, as we see, he's exacerbated them. So, um, look, I just, I'm just very concerned that unless we can find a way of you know, addressing the broad base of working and middle-class people with policies that benefit them, uh, that we are going to end up with the kind of deep cleavage you see in the United States and some parts of Europe. Right. Yeah, which is a little bit scary. You know, I mean, we talked about one scary scenario that kind of lacks a clear exit strategy. I won't dwell on this one too long. I promise after this, we'll turn it around and, and think about the positive uh, future or the optimistic side of things. But, you know, I, I just wonder, reflecting on history, Mr. Harper, have you ever seen, how, how does the scenario typically end? If we, I mean, if we dial back to like maybe 2010, right? Occupy Wall Street emerged on the left and the Tea Party sort of formed on, on the right. And yeah. fast forward 2016, candidates like Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump emerged, right? evolution of those ideas and then more recently uh it's gotten more extreme QAnon, antifa etc cetera, etc cetera. it's a bit intimidating when you think about that trajectory and what happens next right this great yeah, look i i guess i guess um let me give you know i'm i'm at the age now where i can start to reflect on history that i experienced yeah and um you know just a reflection when i was growing up in the 60s as a boy and we had a United States that was looked very much like the United States today. It wasn't just in political turmoil and division. There were increasing levels of political violence. I mean, you know, major political figures were assassinated uh, when I was a boy. Um, and you had, you know, that political turmoil and division went into the 70s with, you know, by the way, it started, all this started out when times were actually pretty good economically. And then it turned into stagflation, rapid inflation, unemployment. We know all the problems of the 70s. Governments came and went. There were more extreme actors, as you mentioned. But ultimately, in the Western world, under Ronald Reagan in the United States, Margaret Thatcher in Great Britain, and similar leaders, uh, frankly, a new policy consensus was created. Uh, it was created by conservatives. Um, for the most part, liberal parties, the Tony Blairs and Bill Clintons of the world, adopted those consensus themselves. And we had, uh, you know, another period of political stability. Now um, we've entered independent of the pandemic. Long before this pandemic, we had certainly 
at least by the global financial crisis, if not before, we'd entered another era of poor performance, growing, uh, growing poor economic performance for parts of the population, social instability, political instability. And uh, look, I am always optimistic. You know, people point to China and they say, look, China's growing and it's orderly. Uh, I'm always, my, my optimism is that democratic societies that have free speech and free association and party competition and debates that we get things wrong pretty constantly, but over time, we eventually gravitate towards solutions. Um, dictatorial societies at any moment in time can adopt the right quote, the right solution. But when they go off the rails, when a, when a dictatorial society goes off the rails, it stays off the rails. Because if you're a dictator, you not only can get it right, but you must get it right. Because if you don't get it right, you undermine your reason for being. And then the only thing you can do is you have to double down and triple down on your mistakes to prove you were really right all the time and jail more and more people who disagree with you Right. until there's a revolution. So as I say, my, my optimism is that as bad as all this turmoil looks like, that somehow we will get, um, you know, we will get political entrepreneurs out of it who come up with ways of moving the bulk of the population towards some kind of new political consensus around good, strong, viable economic policy. Okay, I appreciate that perspective. But it, but it won't be easy. It, won't be, it will not be easy when we're going to, you know, all, all of our countries, maybe not the United States in the short term, but the rest of us, in the very short term are going to be faced with the reality that we are borrowing far more monies than markets are willing to lend, and we're going to have to find ways of, of, of scaling that back. And the scaling back is going to create a lot of winners and losers. Right. Okay. You know, one more question on this topic. I'd love to get your thoughts on the role of media in these scenarios, right? Yeah. If you look at the way, you know, social media tools can be leveraged to convey a message. Um, and I think this has been realized and now responded to by these same entities. I mean, the president of the United States is banned from Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. This is sort of unprecedented. Any thoughts on the role media plays in this and, and potentially the role media could play to turn it around? Well, I know there's a lot of hand-wringing about how terrible social media is, but um, at the same time, you know, social media is one of the few places you can also get the facts if you know how to use it. Um, you know, I, I don't think traditional media has anything to brag about in terms of the quality of information they pass yeah. to the public. Um, and the difficulty with traditional media is if it was wrong on traditional media, there was no way of finding out what was right. I mean, I would I would tell people I would if I had the time and inclination, I would love to teach a course um, in schools to people on how to use media and social media tools to actually get information. Um, you know, in many ways, it's it's actually it's easier and more reliable than ever before. You just have to know how to use it. Uh, look, I, I won't comment on on the individual, um, you know, President Trump's account or whatever. I will just say this, that I think, once again, the strength of social media is the same as the strength of our society. Diversity of voices, competition, eventually the public figures it out. The thing that bothers me about what's happened increasingly in the United States, especially in the past week, is not what one thinks of Donald Trump's Twitter account, but when I see social media companies trying to limit competition, shutting down competitors. Um, that is, I think that's, first of all, I think shutting down competition is bad for any industry, 
But when a group of private uh, actors believe that they should control the airwaves mm -hmm. and that nobody can is allowed to compete with them, I think that's a serious problem, not just for freedom of expression. That's a serious problem of economic policy. Okay. <clears throat> okay, now I want you to... Uh... So daydream with me for a second here, Mr. Harper, you're, you're 20 years old, you're an aspiring entrepreneur. Um, what are the industries that you would point somebody to at that stage right now? Well, I'm, I'm not, how old did you say 20? I'm not, I'm not uh, 20, but you know, I left the uh, public life five years ago, I guess four, more, more accurately four years ago. Yeah. Cause I spent a year in parliament after the, the election. So four years ago, I left public life and determined to start a new career, really a new business career. So even though I'm not 20, I, I have exactly that outlook. Got it. Good. So what I have done, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I could have joined a whole bunch of blue chip corporate boards. For the most part, I haven't done that. I've really only joined one. Um, I instead started my own business and we've focused on industries and clients that we think are going to be the economy of the future. And, you know, so I'm involved in the energy industry. Um, look, I still think there's lots of opportunity in oil and gas over time, but obviously we're focused on energy transition opportunities as well. Um, we're involved in a lot of technology. You know, it's quite obvious to me that in any industry, um, new technological platforms are going to be the future. And, and I think that what you're going to see, Jay, in the next 10 to 20 years is I think you'll see there's a lot of cases where existing uh, occupants, existing um, uh, strategics don't necessarily dominate their industry 20 years from now, that they're actually completely displaced by new entrants operating on new technological foundations. It won't just be a question of industries technologically updating. I think in some right. cases these big companies will actually fall and be replaced. And I think we're going to be surprised. Um, you know, if you look 20 years from now, how few of the kind of top hundred countries, companies of the world are in the top 120 years. Yeah. So we're focused on the tech space and almost everything. I'm, I'm involved a little bit through one fund I'm involved in called Securitas. I'm involved in a, a infrastructure work where, you know, we really are working on, on a, at the private end, more further developing the investment triple P model of infrastructure investment, because governments are going to have to invest more. At the same time, governments are not going to have money. So the way, only way they're going to be able to do this is use the private sector and the private sector should develop a greater range of tools for them to use. Mm. So look, so that's, you know, as I say, I'm uh, tech uh, is obviously, I think central to just about everything, but I would also say that, um, you know, you're right in what you're doing resources. Um, you know, the, the great, there's, and I'm not trying to dismiss environmentalism because I think there's, there's a lot of great environmental tech and a lot of great environmental stuff coming onto the market. But anyone who thinks that the new sets of industries are not going to demand materials and resources and commodities are, are fooling themselves. Um, they will change, but there is, you know, the demand for all sorts of commodities for not just minerals and energy, but also food, uh, et cetera. I mean, these, these demands are just going to continue to rise. So I think there's also, although, although, and we have a little bit of business in the, in, in that space, okay. but I think it's also a great space going forward. But once again, it will have to be, you know, it will have to be current with 
you know, um, environmental improvement. Yeah. And it will also, it will also, um, you know, have to adapt to technology as well. Yeah. I'm with you. Okay. And I really appreciate that perspective. It's a, it's a constant balance. So uh, just to follow up any industry specifically, Mr. Harper, that you think are ripe for disruption? Oh boy. Um, you know, that like, I think, I think almost every industry um you know, has significant, well, I shouldn't say risks of disruption, significant opportunities from new technology, the ability to use um, big data. Let, let me just give an example. The example I'm most familiar with is the oil and gas industry because I used to work in it a long time ago and I'm still an investor in it. Um, you know, for, for example, um, that industry is only starting to figure out how to use the kind of big data analytics solutions for drilling, for reserve monitoring, et cetera, um, that, that are possible out there. I think, and, and I could just extend this to virtually every business. Every business has vast amounts of data that it doesn't use to optimize its business models because it just hasn't had the, either the, it hasn't had the technological capacity to do so, but those capacities are being developed. And um, if you can get on top of it and, and figure out how to use it, you know, there's uh, lots of opportunity. There's also the risk. I mean, look, the, the big risk is that companies, and I've seen this as well, I've seen it in the government of Canada, companies that are not familiar with new technology, bring in technology consultants and ultimately get involved in what I call big digs in technology, where they just get technology projects that, that they put in place and spend years to develop cost, you know, tens of millions of dollars and don't go anywhere. Mm. So, um, so all I can say is what's important about technology is not become too far behind the curve or then it becomes very hard to adapt at all. Got it. Okay. Look, Prime Minister, I want to thank you for your time. This has been a super enjoyable conversation and an absolute honor for myself. Uh, so thank you for spending some time with me and my audience. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. Good luck uh, as we uh, come out of this in the next year. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.